I once asked a Civil War expert why the Confederate Army lost the Battle of Gettysburg. I've not forgotten his answer. He said, the battle planned is never the battle executed. The battle that's planned is never the battle that's executed. Generals diligently plan battles, but the invisible hand of providence will ultimately have its way. And so it is. There are times when life plays out according to plan, and there are times when it does not. Every one of us is dealing with a long list of plan B situations, because plan A was dashed by circumstances outside of our control. Even many of the most noble efforts of God's people striving to carry out God's business Do not work according to plan. Think of a case in point, the great English missionary J. Hudson Taylor. You may remember the story, some of you, Taylor turned his back on a promising career as a physician in order to go to China. He made a litany of unprecedented sacrifices, serving the Lord with singular devotion and experiencing trials and difficulties that would have dissuaded most men from the mission field several times over. But September 19, 1853, he left his mother weeping on the docks of Liverpool, England, expecting to never see her again, and he set sail for China. Hudson Taylor, at this point, already had paid a heavy price to step onto that ship. Surely God would now make the way clear for this servant of the Lord to witness to the Chinese people. He spent five months at sea. And he finally reached the land of his calling. All of the difficulties seemed to be in the past. Now was the time of opportunity. But as his ship approached Shanghai, it became clear that nothing was going to play out according to plan. There on the land in Shanghai, the city had been captured by a rebel army known as the Red Turbans. And forty to 50,000 imperial troops were shelling the city. This was not what he had anticipated. It was so dangerous, he was not able to live where he had planned to live. And so he looked through his files and found the name of a missionary contact he was supposed to pull out if he was in big trouble. He went to that man's door, knocked on the door, and was informed that the man had died several weeks earlier. He pulled out his second file, another missionary who might help him. Knew this person more and had less expectation. He knocked on the door and found out that this man had left for America. Now get the picture, this man standing there. He's single, all alone. No team of missionaries around him. He's in a completely foreign culture. And now he's homeless and the rocket's red glare are bursting in air all around him. In desperation, he seeks refuge with these missionaries And finds no answer. And certainly he's asking, as we might ask, did God send J. Hudson Taylor to China? History would certainly indicate to us that he had. This was God's leading. His plans were on track here, but things were not working out according to plan. Not at all. And Taylor's experience, I think, as we filter it, is far from unusual. As we come to Acts 15, I invite you there in your Bibles, if you are able to turn there to Acts 15, we're looking at the end of this passage of Scripture as we work our way through the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 15 and verse 36 and following through into chapter 16 as we look at it here, this is not all that unusual. In fact, God often works this way. Remember chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council, this great gathering of the leaders of the church. And the decision is given there that Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas take that message and they go back down from Jerusalem north to Antioch where they again identify with the church there and are joining together as ministers of the gospel and building and deepening that great church at Antioch. Perhaps it's in the spring of the year that Paul becomes antsy. Converts were made during that first journey of taking the gospel and he is now interested to share the gospel again with these churches and to deepen them and build them up in the faith. False teachers had been compromising the purity of the gospel, saying that there are works of righteousness which need to be added to our faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And he's anxious to contend for the truth and to edify these believers. So Paul hatches a plan to advance the cause of Jesus and takes his idea to his good friend and missionary companion, Barnabas. We notice here in verse 36 of chapter 15 what takes place, and it's not according to plan. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. This takes us back, of course, to chapters 13 and 14. And we're going to look here just briefly at a a video of this journey, just as we remember it. We're almost playing like gods here from up above. But it starts, of course, at this great city of Antioch. And from there, Barnabas and Paul worked their way down to the coast, the Mediterranean Sea, and to the port of Seleucia. From Seleucia, they make their way across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus. This is where Barnabas is home. At Salamis, they work their way across the island to Paphos, And then they make about a hundred mile journey from the port here, north, across the Mediterranean Sea, to Perga, probably Italia in the port there, but then to the city of Perga. This is where Mark deserts the journey. They make their way that arduous path up through the mountains to Antioch and Pisidia, and then from there work their way over to preach at Iconium, then to the city of Lystra, And then across to the city of Derbe. At that point, they turn back around, go back to Lystra from Derbe, and back to Iconium, back to Pisidian Antioch, and then work their way down to the sea, to Perga, where they preach the gospel, to Italia, the port city, and then across the Mediterranean, back to Antioch, where they are proclaiming the word of the Lord. Of course, then going down to Jerusalem, and we'll look at that in a little bit. But working their way down to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council, now they're back again at Antioch, and at their home church, and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. While they're there in Antioch, they're saying, let's go back. Let's go back to these same cities and stabilize these believers. And I think we should park here for a little bit and just ask, what is their motivation? Why do they want to go back to these people? In verse 36, we find the word visit. That might miss us. It just, you know, they just want to see them again. 
But it's a word that is related to the word episkopos, bishop. It is one who exercises pastoral oversight. That's the motivation here for this journey. They're anxious to assess and to contribute to the spiritual progress of the new believers that they led to Jesus on that earlier journey that we've just seen. So they're going to go back to these cities, back to build up these people. I think we could draw this point not only in light of what's going on here in this one verse, but in light of all of the New Testament. It is spiritual child abuse to lead unbelievers to a profession of faith in Jesus and then to abandon them. And this is the pattern in some churches. I think it is probably largely driven by the idea for numbers. Some churches witness the gospel of Christ, seeking to bring people to a profession of faith, then they move on to the next people because they want to get more numbers. And they leave these who have professed faith in Christ to themselves. That was not the idea that Paul and Barnabas had. As we look back to 14, 21 through 23, they were always anxious to build up and encourage and deepen those who had come to faith in Christ. And I pray that would always be the orientation of this church, that we would lean hard toward discipling and stabilizing new believers in Jesus. This is the pattern that is set down here for us. These yearning hearts, longing to see people grow in the faith. So this is what motivates them. Remember, they've suffered a lot. Paul, to the very edge of his life, because he was stoned for sharing the gospel of Christ, but they want to go back and deepen these in the faith. So they're hammering out their plans. And you can see Paul and Barnabas talking through it again, and the excitement beginning to build as they figure out this journey that's going to take place to edify these churches. But at this point, things fall apart. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. This takes us back to chapter 13. Remember that place at at, uh, Perga where Mark deserts the missionary band. After they made that journey and landed there in southern Turkey, working their way up, for some reason he deserts them. Now, travel in those days was very arduous. It was dangerous. And this was a harrowing mission behind enemy lines, and every soldier had to pull his weight on this journey. But Mark does not. He abandons. He turns around. For reasons we don't know, he leaves And the Greek text indicates here that Paul does not think it wise to bring along a companion who would raise daily concerns about his reliability. Can we lean on this man now? Paul says, I don't think so. I'm reminded of a recent journey that I made from South Africa to Zambia with three other men. There's a a jeep that we took, 26-hour journey, You crossed rivers, not on bridges, and you had to cross national uh, borders and negotiate sensitive checkpoints. One of the group in another vehicle ended up in in the uh, police uh, headquarters in one town. It's tricky business. We had a deacon that took us on this trip and and sort of took on the challenge of making it work at all these border crossings. And he was a man of skill, a man of stamina and courage. 
And I can just imagine if he left us in the middle of that journey, what emotional pressure that would put upon you to make this journey and get it done. We'd probably still be somewhere in Africa, not here yet, but you'd get back eventually. But it would really put pressure on you. I don't want to read too much of that into the experience here, but Paul does give us this much. This man deserted us. It put pressure on the missionary band. It's not easy to travel in that day. It's a difficult task. Many dangers, and Mark was not reliable. So here we have Paul looking at the mission and saying, I don't think we can trust Mark here. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the great encourager, this man of uh, 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 giving heart and love for people, this is his nephew. And he says, we need to bring Mark along. We need to bring him along. We need to encourage him. Both men refused to budge on Mark. Verse 39. There arose a sharp disagreement. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. This was a, to borrow Hudson Taylor's phrase, wholly unexpected. It's a sad development. We think back to the personalities involved here. Paul and Barnabas had been a powerful missionary team together. Paul is the, is the deep theologian of immense intellect and zealous speech. And then there's Barnabas, the caring, giving son of encouragement. Remember when Saul of Tarsus was converted, went down to Jerusalem? Nobody wanted to talk to the man. They were afraid of him. They didn't know if he was real. Barnabas was the man who stood up, put his arm around Saul of Tarsus, and brought him in among the apostles and said, we can trust him. He's a good man. He's been truly converted. Barnabas was the one that went back up to Antioch from Jerusalem and reached out to Tarsus. He, in fact, he went to Tarsus to find Paul, to bring him back to Antioch, where they became a great teaching team together. Then they'd been through all the thick and thin of that first missionary journey. I'm sure that Barnabas was very involved in picking Paul up after his stoning and bringing him back to health and encouraging him along. And they had been through so much together. Then down to the Jerusalem council, speaking together before the church as one voice, speaking about their missionary journeys. I'm sure in lighthearted times, they had to be teasing one another about being Zeus and Hermes. You know, I mean, it's not rain for a while, Zeus. Let's bring down some rain. Remember the, those people that were calling them these gods? They had to love one another deeply and had experienced so much. And now here they are. This is not according to plan. It's such sharp disagreement, they separate ways. And we want to ask them, well, who's right in this? And of course, in the end, we can't ultimately know. Luke doesn't lay that out for us in specific terms. Perhaps Barnabas was right in seeing Mark's potential. And perhaps Paul was right in seeing his liabilities in the current situation. We do know in 2 Timothy that Paul came to trust Mark. Mark had come along, he had matured, and the apostle Paul was a big enough man to say, I can trust the man now. But whatever the case, there's a hidden hand that's steering circumstances in the direction that Paul and Barnabas had never planned. 
What was going to separate Paul and Barnabas from one another? Nothing. But God sees this as wise, and he separates them. Now the one missionary band has become two. Barnabas and Mark working their way across to the island of Cyprus, strengthening the believers there, allowing Paul and Silas to journey by land to the Galatian churches. So Silas is, as we look at the history of it, really in some respects more helpful to Paul perhaps than Barnabas might have been. Silas was a Roman citizen and that is going to help them out in certain situations. Silas was certainly a talented and trusted man and one fluent in Greek, which may not have been the case with Barnabas. He was an amanuensis, one who helped Paul to write First and Second Thessalonians. You had to be schooled as a writer in that day, and Silas was. He was as well a prophet. Paul would have always chosen Barnabas over Silas, I'm sure, but God in his purposes brings Silas with Paul, and they become a significant ministry force. As we think on this ministry disagreements, they're not always the disaster that they seem to be. Now, we do need to develop the capacity to have sharp disagreement and love one another. Some people have no capacities for that. If there's any sharp disagreement, all we can do is hate one another, be nasty to each other. I don't see any indication that Paul and Barnabas were fleshly in their responses to one another with anger and sinful responses and developing factions. There's no indication of that. Yet, there was sharp disagreement. They were really on a different page concerning a personal issue. This wasn't a doctrinal matter. It's just a matter about this young man, Mark. But when there is a dispute, we should really thank God for people of principle who are zealous enough to contend for the glory of God and for what's best for His cause if they're doing so well and wisely. In matters of practical application where pride is not ruling, truth may indeed be held by both sides of a dispute. That is, pieces of the truth might be on both sides. Not that truth is flexible and everybody's right in their own eyes, but that there is truth there and we may be seeing different aspects of it as we have such a dispute. But the great truth here is that God is always sovereignly at work to bring about his purposes, always. And in this truth, Paul and Barnabas rest and carry on their work. They don't give up. But indeed, Barnabas goes to Cyprus, his home island, and he works there. In fact, he sails across the Mediterranean there and sails right off the page of Acts. We don't hear of him again. But we know that he's always held in high esteem. In fact, at this point, he's probably seen as the greater missionary than even Paul. But he carries on the work there with the people that have been touched in Cyprus. And this allows Paul and Silas to go now by land, north, and to head into the regions that are above them. What we're going to do here is look at about half of what will be the second missionary journey of Paul as Silas and Paul make their way through the Roman world, going back to visit these churches. Now, the Jerusalem Council is Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas speak there for the purity of the gospel of Christ and the mission to the Gentiles. Damascus, a little way further, this is where Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was converted. And so we move further yet north along the coast to Antioch. 
It's from here that Paul and Silas journey to the cities that they had visited. Tarsus, where Saul is from, so here's the two regions where they're proclaiming the message of the Jerusalem Council. Then they come back to Derbe, remember that? And to Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. Now, we're going to look further here today at some of the great problems that they have along the way once they visit these churches after Pisidian Antioch. This is the other Antioch in Pisidia. From this place, there's a lot of things that don't go according to plan. Eventually, they're going to end up at Troas, the port city, make their way across the Aegean Sea, stopping at Samothrace, and then they'll make their way from there across to what we understand to be Greece today and uh, the city of Neapolis, first of all. Then they're going to spend some significant time at the city of Philippi. There will be other cities along the way. We'll stop there and we're going to, for sake of uh, the purposes at hand, leave them there for some time among us here as we work our way through Acts. But they'll work their way eventually to Philippi. Let me just say that as you look at this map, that was not according to plan. They did not have any of this in view outside of that early region. But right here, as you look in this region, Syria, first of all, where Antioch and then Cilicia, in this region, they're taking the message of the Jerusalem Council up into this region, then back through here to visit the churches they had visited the first time. And then from that point on, in all of this and beyond, down through what is Greece today, down through here, All of this journey is being added to their itinerary by God himself. Well, one thing not according to plan was to be without Barnabas. Paul has Silas, and then we find something that takes place uniquely in Lystra at verse 1 of chapter 16. Paul came also then to Derbe to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. It's been somewhere in the range of two years. It's likely that Timothy came to know Christ through Paul and Barnabas' preaching on that first pass through. And now in this two-year period, he has become known to the churches at Lystra and Iconium. They've come to trust him, put confidence in him. And as Paul comes to know this young man, he too gains great respect for him. Such respect, verse 3, that he wants to take Timothy along with him to accompany him on this journey. Think Mark there. Mark's missing. He wants to take a new man along, and this is Timothy, as he's impressed with this young man. And he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. According to 2 Timothy, Timothy was carefully trained in the Hebrew Scriptures by his devout mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. It would be interesting to know how his mother, a devout Jew, married a Gentile. We don't know the circumstances there. But at any rate, because he's a Jew, through his mother, he would have been considered a Jew, but because of his father being a Greek, he was never circumcised as a Jew, therefore not identifying with the covenant people. This would have made Timothy an apostate Jew in the eyes of the Jews. He would not have been permitted to get into synagogues. 
Is that going to work with Paul's strategy? What does he do? He goes to these great cities and he starts at the synagogue where people are prepared to receive the message of Christ crucified and risen as the Messiah. They have a knowledge of the Bible, of the Hebrew Scriptures, and all the prophecies pointing to Christ. So he'd always start in the synagogue. Here he's thinking, I want this man to come with me. We get to the synagogues, they're going to say, no way. Particularly in this region where he's known. His father's a Greek He's not been circumcised. He's not coming in this synagogue. Paul can't have that, and so he has Timothy circumcised. When the Judaizers later will say, you must circumcise Titus, because they have this, the idea that to be saved, one must participate in the Mosaic Covenant in its ritual. What did Paul say? No way. It's not going to happen. Titus is a Gentile, and the purity of the gospel is at stake here. He's not going to be circumcised. But for Timothy, who was a Jew, and the circumstances are a matter of evangelistic expediency, Paul's fine with it. In fact, he encourages him to be circumcised so that they can evangelize more effectively among the Jews. Verse 4, So as they went on their way through the cities, gaining access now uh, by... Timothy's circumcision among the Jews and also to the Gentiles, they delivered to them, particularly the Gentiles, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. It's referring to what? There's Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Verse 5, so in consequence, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Right theology, hammered out in Jerusalem, is now influencing the message of these teachers, of Paul and Silas, and the churches are encouraged, and they're being built up in the faith. They're being edified. So some things haven't gone according to plan, but some things have gone very well according to plan. The churches are strengthened, and Paul's pastoral heart is rejoicing. But now we come to a period of time in the life of this band of missionaries, where nothing works. Nothing goes according to plan. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygian Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. We need to read a little bit between the lines here and to know they have come now back to Antioch of Pisidia, not the one, the Antioch from which they hail, but they've made their way up here to Antioch, and they're thinking of heading southwest along the Via Sebast, probably, to Colossae, and then from there on to Ephesus. There's a major Roman road that passes through these two great cities. They have every intention to go there. They're working out their plan and deciding, let's press a little bit further, proclaim the gospel of Christ in these new regions. But the Holy Spirit, strong word, forbids them. He hinders them. He prevents them. How does he do this? We don't really know. But they head north up into Bithynia. So the road journeys up and they say, oh, it must be we've been hindered providentially or by a prophet, uh, God giving revelation. We don't know. But they head up now to Bithynia, probably to hit some of these major cities along the southern coast of the Black Sea. Some great ports that are there. Great opportunity to evangelize. 
They're heading up north here, and God once again intervenes and says no. Verse 7, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. They don't go southwest. They don't go north because God keeps hindering their plans. They end up at the port city of Troas. And from Troas, they'll make their way across the Aegean, the northern portion here, and work their way down through Greece before they head back. But again, God opposes their plans. He stands in their way. Whether through prophet, whether through circumstances, the Spirit of Jesus will not allow plan A. They're doing the best they know. What is God doing here? One thing we find that's helpful is that simple phrase, the Spirit of Jesus. This is His mission. We wonder sometimes about this. We have earnest desires for the advance of the gospel, but God does not bless our plans. The response can very easily be frustration and discouragement, anger, joyless resignation, just giving up and saying, oh, I'll go home. God doesn't bless my plans, I'll just go home. But such responses subtly evidence how quickly we forget, how dull we are to remember that it is Jesus' mission, not ours. We are servants called to obey His orders, not little gods seated on thrones to determine our own futures. This strikes somewhat close to home for us, doesn't it, as a church? We've put together plans here in recent months and last year concerning the ideal configuration of our pastoral staff or plans that we laid in place as to what we thought was best for this church and good, that God would smile upon it. He didn't, not the way we planned it. We had plans working with many man hours with a plan to go into the city for the renovation of another building. And on the day, just as we were ready to go in, the deal fell apart. God said no. Now we can respond to these things with frustration and anger and joyless resignation. I don't think that's how we've responded by the grace of God. To know God can say no anywhere along the way that He desires to say no. And He will. I look over our longer history as a church. We've had a desire and have in the past indeed supported two missionaries in Japan to have a witness in that unique and difficult land for the gospel. One of those missionaries embraced false doctrine and we had to part ways. One of those missionaries left the ministry under less than encouraging circumstances, and we had to part ways. God said no. I don't know why. In all of these things, as far as I can see, we're determining, striving, planning to do what's very best for His church, what's good for His cause, and God at times just says no. I don't want you to do that. What we have to come to terms with in all of this is that God is sovereign and we are not. He is God, we aren't. And so we ask the question, whose plan holds highest esteem in my heart? My plans or His plans? As the choir sung today, to bow the knee 
to the sovereignty of Christ is really what's at issue. God's plan revealed by his hand of providence, is that what matters or is it my plan revealed by what I want and what seems to make most sense to me? This had to be a very hard and confusing time for Paul and his companions. But they make their way to Troas, the major port city, for vessels traveling between Asia and Macedonia. That's what they will do, and that's exactly where God wants them. Not according to their plans, but according to His. And they go with it. Verse 9 A vision appears to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Though many have tried, I think it's rather silly to try to figure out who this man is. We're not told. It's just a vision. But immediately when Paul had seen the vision, verse 10, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The meaning of the vision is clear. And they head across the Aegean Sea, eventually to Philippi, where there will be a fairly lengthy stay on this missionary journey, and we will leave them there. But we see that in verses 11 and 12. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city for some days. What we witness in this chapter, do you see it as unusual? I don't think it really is all that unusual. Plans laid down at great cost with great diligence, but God's saying no. It is all a bit strange, though. You think of the strange ways of God Quoting from John Stott, who quotes A.T. Pearson, he reminds us of some of the missionary history of recent generations here. He said, Livingston tried to go to China, but God sent him to Africa instead. I just saw his statue near Livingston. All these towns all around being renamed, but not Livingston. David Livingston's presence is still felt in Africa to this day. He wanted to go to China. William Carey planned to go to Polynesia in the South Seas, but God guided him to India. William Carey, anybody that knows the history of India, has got to deal with William Carey to this very day and the influence of his presence there. Adoniram Judson went to India first, but he was driven to Burma. It's strange. It's all very strange. We labor with zeal to advance the cause of Christ. We lay plans to pour our time and money and abilities into the glory of His name, and He stops us. Sometimes stops us cold in our tracks, even when our ideas are great. I talked to a missionary yesterday. God has put roadblocks in two different paths and direction, and He's hurting I told him I was going to preach about him today. (laughs) It's strange in one sense, but in another sense, it's not all that unusual. Plan B situations remind us that driver A has a firm grip on the steering wheel of the universe. We should learn to rest in the ride. Do you remember the words of the song we sing around here often? Hast thou not seen how thy desires all have been granted in what he ordaineth? 
Sometimes we say, no, God. No, you have taken away all my desires in what you have ordained. I want plan A, and I still want plan A. I had no plan to run into financial trouble like this. I had no plan to still be single. I had no plan to have this struggle in marriage or with my children. I had no plan to still be in school. I had no plan to not be in school yet. I had no plan to not know yet at this point what I would be doing with my life. I had no plan to be in this difficult situation not knowing the way forward. I had no plan for my parents to lay down this direction and for me to have to follow it. And on and on it goes. And the question that arises here in the context of mission, but here really trickling down into all of our lives is, can we trust God to run His universe or can we not? What we see here is that Jesus is actively working His salvation plan and we must rest in that and rejoice in that. Human ingenuity and planning are wise and essential. Do we draw from this passage that Paul was evil for planning? That he was evil for working out the details of this mission endeavor? Not at all. We must continue to plan and work, but never do we have the final word. Jesus is actively working His salvation plan, and that plan is good. And Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are in the crosshairs of that plan. The words of Hudson Taylor in his autobiography concerning events in Shanghai when he arrived, he said, were wholly unexpected. But he kept pulling sheets out of his file and he came down to the third missionary, a man he didn't know and a man that he did not expect to gain any help from. But as he came to know that man, and as he came to work out the situation there, what took place in Shanghai and beyond in his life as a missionary in China, he said it all made sense and it came to be seen as God's channel of help. Does God know what He is doing? Will all my desires be granted in what He ordains in the end? The answer to that question is to look at the cross. There we see God's plan of salvation. A plan that is permeated with utter love for His people. What we look to is the cross of Christ. What we look to are the promises of God, such as Paul writes to the Corinthians through inspiration. He says, This slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, to the things that are eternal. Oh, how many plan A's are dashed in this life. And what trial and heartache comes through so many of it. But what we are brought to see here in the outworking of His saving purposes is that God can always be trusted because His project is not for our momentary pleasure. His project is for our ultimate and eternal redemption. 
when God works his plan, it is always right. It is always filled with love, and as hard as it is sometimes, we can learn from Jesus to look to the joy that is set before us, and to learn to say with him, as far as the temporal desires and plans that we have, not my will, but yours be done. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how weak we feel. How much we sense our virtually blasphemous ways of wanting our way above all else. And yet, God, so many times our very natural desires to see what's best and good and right from our perspective. Lord, I pray that we'd learn through this account that you are always working to save your people and that your ways and your providential hand can be trusted. Doesn't mean we sit on our hands, doesn't mean we give up. We must work, we must labor and plan, and we must indeed agonize and weep when certain trials are visited upon us. It's right and good to do so. But God, I do pray that there would be in the heart of everyone who hears this message that knows you as Savior, that there would be a sense of peace in the disputes, in the broken plans, in the trials of this life, may there be a settled peace that you know what you're doing. While we may not understand it, you've given us the cross. May we rest in that, that you love us and will never forsake us. Bring about those eternal purposes, we pray. We do not ask that you'll bring them about by making our lives easy. We do not ask that you'll bring them about by never crushing any of our plans, but we ask that you would bring them about to the glory of your name as you see fit and that you would teach us to rest in those purposes, saying, not my will, but yours be done. May that yieldedness to the will of God characterize our church and our individual lives. For anyone who does not know you as Savior, Father, we pray that you would draw that one to Christ today and to see in the cross the answer to all of life and eternity. Through Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.